0: So, it's been a week. In the blur of weeks, as one seems to bleed into the next that we've come into, um, at least for me, this has been one that's been particularly challenging. On the one hand, many of our personal lives might be relatively calm. That's true for our family right now. We've continued just to stay home, again, We're weary of it, but in a way we've kind of learned how to accept it. So we find the things to celebrate. May the fourth be with you. Um, Jason had the week off from work this week, so he ended up building raised beds in our backyard and planting a garden with the girls, which was very sweet. Friday, we celebrated the birthday of our eldest, Elliot, just turned 14. And, of course, today is Mother's Day. But these little personal bubbles we're living in, these small confines they can feel like, um, are also part of a bigger world, right? A world that continues to be in deep distress, and the distress is real. This week, we've seen a marked increase in states beginning broad reopening measures, despite warnings from public health officials that in many places where that's taking place, it's not clear this can be done safely without putting many lives in real danger. At the same time, we've seen the rise of conspiracy theories circulating online, questioning the motives of these health officials and the political leaders who may support their recommendations, which is just leading to a further distrust of those who want to follow the science in order to keep people safe. And yet it's also true, we must also hold, that many who recommend simply staying at home aren't the same folks whose livelihood has been upended because their work can't continue from the couch. All of this has led to a familiar set of political fault lines opening up afresh in ways that feel particularly heavy as we wonder how many human lives will be sacrificed on the altar of our economy, or because we don't have the political will to more expansively support those who are most vulnerable not only to the virus, but to the economic devastation that the shutdowns bring, even if they save lives. On top of all of this, this week also brought more tragic hashtags to our view more lives like Ahmad Arbery, as well as Sean Reed, lost to the horrific evils of white supremacy. Many of us lament the reality that Black Lives Matter is still an urgent cry we need to make, but clearly, Both the lack of justice for those still suffering the terrorism of white violence, as well as the disproportionate impact of this virus on black and brown bodies makes it clear that this is so. I feel the tension of holding both the personal and the collective. The dissonance feels so challenging Even as I celebrated the birthday of Elliot on Friday, I also grieved the loss of Omar who, until this week, I didn't know, shared my son's birthday, May 8th. Even as we celebrate mothers today, I can't help but grieve the more than 75,000 lives lost to the pandemic in recent months and the families who are experiencing their first Mother's Day without mom, without grandma, perhaps who never had an opportunity to say goodbye. Mothers experiencing their first Mother's Day without their children. What to say amidst all this division, tension, loss? Where is the source of resurrecting hope? That is, of course, the title of this series, Resurrecting Hope, a series where we're looking to these stories in the wake of Jesus's death and resurrection to ask how the kind of power that released new realities, new sources of hope in the era of the early church might also bring something necessary to this season of sustained crisis and loss that we are living in. We're looking for a hope that doesn't deny reality, a hope that doesn't minimize the loss, a hope that, as Katie pointed us to a couple of weeks ago, can be found in the midst of uncertainty. As Katie shared, this kind of hope isn't about confidently proclaiming what we know. It's a hope that's not based in certainty, but in, as she beautifully put it, an intentional relationship with possibility. An intentional relationship with possibility. When I look at the week we've had, I have to confess my own fatalism. I confess my own cynicism, that we can ever move forward into a more just reality. It feels challenging to intentionally relate to possibility, but it also feels like the only way forward that isn't rooted in despair. Before I knew exactly what the week we would have would be, I had been connecting with Katie about maybe where the next step in this series might take us, and I felt led Um, And she affirmed to a story that demonstrates another important character, or chapter, in the unfolding resurrection of what we've come to call the body of Christ. It's one that's all about God meeting us in radical, transformative ways in the places where we are open to new possibilities. And as I looked at it later in this week, feeling the blend of all these emotions I've been naming, it still feels to me like an important story to reflect anew on in this time. So acknowledging all that we're feeling, all the fear, all the uh, weariness, the cynicism, acknowledging all of it, I invite you to take a fresh look with me at this story and ask if perhaps the Spirit might meet us in similar ways today, ways that bring resurrecting hope. So the story we're turning to today is found in Acts chapter 10, it's a few chapters after the story uh, Katie shared about Peter and John and the man with the disability that they encountered at the temple gate. Simon Peter has continued to share about the resurrection of Jesus, not only in Jerusalem, but kind of traveling throughout Israel, performing miraculous signs and wonders as he does. And then in the beginning of Acts chapter 10, we meet a new character, Cornelius. And the way Luke, the author, tells the story, we're shown side by side, um, two very different men, but they're only 30 miles apart, And they're having very similar, strange experiences that lay the groundwork for something truly transformative to take place. It's a next huge part of the unfolding work of God's presence, resurrecting this new body of Christ in the early church. So let's take a look at Acts 10, starting right at the beginning. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as well as all his household. He did many acts of charity for the people and prayed to God regularly, and about three o'clock one afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Staring at him and becoming greatly afraid, Cornelius replied, What is it, Lord? The angel said to him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have gone up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon, who's called Peter. This man is staying as a guest with a man named Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the sea. All right, we'll stop there for now. So here we meet Cornelius. This man, we're told, is a Roman centurion. He is found in a city named Caesarea, which is a city literally named after the emperor of Rome, Caesar. Okay, it's a Roman outpost. It is like the seat of Roman occupation here in Israel. Most of these Roman soldiers, occupiers, are based in Caesarea. Cornelius is a commander in that occupying army. Centurions oversaw a hundred troops. So Cornelius, at first glance, is like kind of a scary character. He's part of this oppressive empire that just weeks before performed the execution of Jesus. But from the jump, just after we meet this character and we're told that he's a centurion, we're also told something that would seem probably counterintuitive to many who heard the story. That this centurion connected to Rome, though he might be, was also devout and God-fearing. What does that mean? Well, the term God-fearers was actually used to describe Gentiles, non-Jewish persons, in the ancient world that demonstrated worship for the God of Israel without becoming full converts to Judaism. So they seemed to respect the Jewish faith, honored the deity of that faith, worshiped through prayer, through involvement, perhaps in the local synagogue, through acts of justice, like giving to those in need. But they wouldn't have actually been considered converts to Judaism because they hadn't taken other steps that would have been like a strong break from their own cultural groups. So they had not started observing Jewish dietary regulations. They had not renounced their culture and its practices that many Jewish people understood to be idolatrous, and they have not aligned themselves through one of the clearest, most ancient markers of Jewish identity. Their men aren't circumcised. This is the kind of person that we meet in Cornelius. So the story tells us that this uncircumcised, God-fearing centurion has a vision during his afternoon prayers. And Cornelius immediately responds to what the angels ask of him, like a good soldier following his commander. He calls these two servants, he calls one of his soldiers who's underneath him, and he sends them all off to find this Simon Peter in Joppa and bring him back. Meanwhile, the storyteller shifts our focus to Peter, who's been having a vision of his own. praying on the roof of Simon the Tanner, where he's staying as he's waiting for lunch. So let's pick up the story a little bit there, uh, starting in verse 10. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing the meal, a trance came over him and he saw heaven opened and an object, something like a large sheet descending, being let down to earth by its four corners. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and wild birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But Peter said, certainly not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything defiled and ritually unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has made clean, you must not consider ritually unclean. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into heaven. So as soon as this object's taken away, there's a knock at the door downstairs and Cornelius's contingent arrives at the house. And Cornelius has, ev- or, Peter has every reason right now to be wary. The contact between Jews and Gentiles was often quite limited. And here is this Roman soldier arriving, asking for Peter and inviting him to come to the home of his Commander, remember, a commander in the army that just executed the leader Peter is following. Suspicion is completely understandable. But fresh off this strange vision, Peter recognizes that these things might be connected and invites them in. He seems to already be discerning that this image he just saw might not actually be about foods being taboo at all, but perhaps has more to do with associating with people who tradition has also made clear that contact with would be taboo. So let's stop there for a bit. Because already the story is off to an interesting start as we see these two separate incidences at play both facilitated by the same power at work. We can see already that the primary character in this unfolding drama it's not Peter It's not Cornelius. It's the divine spirit that is speaking to both of them. The spirit seems to be orchestrating something that neither of these men involved really understands yet. The spirit is the powerful force driving the action and continuing the resurrecting work that's at play. So what is the spirit up to here? Well, already I think we have the first answer as we look at these two encounters in prayer. The spirit comes to challenge people's assumptions. The spirit comes to challenge people's assumptions. The story begins with these two visions, both initiated by this spirit. Both men are praying and for both of them, prayer turns out not to be a place where they're like confirmed, in their own understanding, prayer doesn't cement them further into certainty. Prayer is a vehicle for the divine to speak back to these two men in ways that are surprising and challenging. You hear me? Prayer is a vehicle for the divine to speak back things that are surprising and challenging. I think this is a really important point for us to notice and acknowledge for a moment. When Katie shared a couple of weeks ago, she's talked about her own faith journey, right? A journey from a faith that was built on certainty to a faith that was much more mysterious, where doubts and questions play a significant role. And I think her story resonated for many of us because we've taken similar journeys. It resonates for me, right? As we do that work of deconstructing and reconstructing that comes with an evolution of faith, we might wonder what role a core practice like prayer now plays. This story reminds us that prayer is not a monologue of faith. It's not a practice simply to program our minds with dogma. It's not an incantation, as she reminded us. Prayer is dialectic. It's conversational. It's contemplative. It's mystical. Prayer is one of the mechanisms we use to cultivate that intentional relationship with possibility. When we quiet our minds, open our hearts to communicate with the divine, we're not just kids like reading off a Christmas list to Santa. Prayer has the capacity to bring us into conversation with the loving heart at the center of the universe, which certainly attends to our needs and desires, but also speaks into them. Where needed, this spirit challenges our thinking, challenges our points of view, challenges our assumptions, and invites us into a more expansive perspective. We see this at work in the story, primarily through the character of Peter, And I think that makes sense. According to tradition, Acts is written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. It's like a sequel. And throughout those two narratives, we see the development of Peter as a character. You can say he serves as a kind of everyman for the audience. His proclamations of faith call forth our own moments of clarity around who Jesus is, right? In other places, it's clear that Peter really misses Jesus's intent in ways that many of us struggle with too. His denial of Jesus the night of the crucifixion is totally relatable to us. And also the invitation extended him to build the new community in which the spirit of Jesus would be alive after his resurrection, that's an invitation we are all given as well. So when we see the work of the Spirit, how much work that Spirit needs to engage in to challenge this man's assumptions. The way the Spirit needs to give him a vision three times, because he is really wrestling with what he sees, when we see all that taking place, that should be instructive for us too. Now I want to be clear right here that Peter's reticence about this word he's receiving is not about something inherently legalistic or judgmental in Peter's Jewish identity. His focus on kosher observance is not some backwards, less evolved understanding that Peter simply needs to be delivered from, but I think it's important to name as we read this and acknowledge that Christians have said that for generations perpetuating anti-Semitism for centuries by reading that into this text and others like it. I want to state it clearly. This text is about confronting bias, but Peter's Jewish faith is not what makes him biased. His humanity is what makes him biased, his humanity. Social scientists tell us All human beings are born ready to be biased. It is how our minds learn the world. Peter, like members of every other cultural group throughout history, has practices, has norms, has taboos, has ways of understanding how he should relate to others that define his group as well as other groups. What's being confronted here is not kosher observance itself or any other sacred practice of Judaism. All of these practices were part of the religious observance of Jesus himself, and many followers of Jesus in the early church retained these practices as a core part of their worship of God. What Peter's being asked to consider here is the assumption that his sincere way of connecting with God is the only genuine way to participate in the expansive, resurrecting project that the divine spirit is undertaking. In prayer, the divine is challenging that assumption. My whole vocation in ministry might not have happened if the Spirit hadn't come to challenge some assumptions of mine in prayer. You see, I came to an active faith connecting with Jesus in college in the midst of pursuing a theater degree, and it was an odd experience identifying as a Christian and also a theater major. I often felt like I didn't fit in whatever group I was in. In the church world, I was one of the only artists, let alone theater people in my productions or theater classes, I was weird because I went to church. Early on in the church context, I was given lots of opportunities for leadership, asked to lead worship, asked to lead small groups. But when I was asked to consider ministry as a vocation, I always declined. I'm called to the world, not the church, I'd say, believing sincerely that I had to choose one or the other, that they were these two separate entities. So I started a band, and I worked day jobs, living into trying to make it as an artist, always doing this ministry stuff on the side. And then I got really bad pneumonia in my mid-20s. I was bedridden for weeks. I had to go on short-term disability leave from my, for my day job. I had to cancel all my shows for a couple of months. I had to step back from all the ministry opportunities and I found myself in all of those hours on the couch, noticing that it wasn't my gigs or my day job that I was missing. It was the ministry stuff. So from that couch, I entered into this divine dialogue of prayer, why do I miss ministry? I found myself asking God. Because that's what you were made for. I felt like the spirit was speaking very matter-of-factly back to me. But I thought I was made for the world, not the church. I argued with the Spirit, not unlike Peter, arguing that he'd never eaten anything unclean. Why does it have to be one or the other? I felt the Spirit ask back. And in that moment, I realized I'd been making a false choice. I had internalized a dualistic understanding that many in the evangelical culture that I had come to faith in seemed to view reality through. But this was not God's view, that there's this distinct world and this distinct church, and the goal is to deliver people from one to the other. No, I'm looking for people to take the church into the world, to tear down the barrier between the two, the Spirit was saying. In prayer, the resurrecting Spirit was challenging my assumptions and helping open me up to a new kind of understanding, one that changed the trajectory of my life. The Spirit comes to challenge assumptions, and often, not always, but often prayer, I think, can be one of the important ways that happens. Let's come back to our story The spirit comes and challenges Peter's assumptions enough that he opens the door and lets these two Gentile servants and the Roman soldier in. And the next day he gathers some friends and they travel together with the group to Cornelius' home in Caesarea. So we're gonna pick up the story there. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting anxiously, for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So when Peter came in, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter helped him up saying, stand up, I too am a mere mortal. Peter continued talking with him as he went in and he found many people gathered together. And he said to them, you know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, yet God has shown me I should call no person defiled or ritually unclean. Therefore, when you sent for me, I came without any objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? The story goes on. Cornelius tells him about the angel. He tells him about the prayer. And then um, he tells him how he was sent. He was to send for Peter. And we'll pick up the story a few verses later. Therefore, I sent for you at once. And you were kind enough to come. So now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. And then Peter started speaking. Oh, I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcomed before him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Again, I'm gonna skip ahead a bit. He, He continues to tell the story of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then we have this in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were greatly astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, well, no one can withhold the water for these people to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? So he gave orders to have them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for several days. End of the story. Oh, this is a revolutionary moment. It's a moment that blows paradigms open. Challenging assumptions was not enough. It was just the beginning of what this divine, resurrecting spirit wanted to do in this drama. So what else do we see taking place? The spirit comes to show us new ways that the divine works. That's the second thing I'm highlighting. The spirit comes to show us new ways that the divine works no one could have called this moment before it happened it was just a few weeks before the pentecost had taken place where the holy spirit came in a real way for these followers of jesus and they found themselves speaking in tongues they received this infilling of the same powerful presence that had been active in the life and work of jesus and they had been commissioned to carry on that work through an initiation by this spirit into this transformed, resurrected body of Christ. But this is new in a way that was even more revolutionary. Because now the Holy Spirit was coming for the first time on men with foreskin. Really? It was coming on the uncircumcised. It was coming on the Roman soldiers no less. How could this be? It blew open the understanding of these Jewish followers of Jesus, all that they had understood for what this project was that they were a part of. But with such a clear demonstration of divine power and presence, Peter and his friends could not deny that clearly God was involved. Even as they continued to hold their own practices as sacred, they also had to be open to new ways of encountering the divine and recognizing that God could also work in ways that were outside of their traditions and theology. Peter experiences this new perception in phases. It seems to like unfold throughout the story in the way resurrection, I would say, always does. First, he names where the divine has challenged his assumptions. At first, he shows up and he says, well, God has shown me I should call no person defiled or ritually unclean. But it's not till after he hears kind of what's been going on with Cornelius. It's not till he sees this humility and open mindedness that this powerful person demonstrates that he has this deeper aha moment. Now I understand God does not show favoritism. Still, even that awareness of God's favor on this Roman leader doesn't prepare him for that moment at the end when the spirit falls. Once that happens, all Peter can do is just surrender to this clear evidence of God at work. Well, I can't stop them from being baptized, as what he's saying. God is clearly doing for these folks what God has done for us. They're as much a part of this thing as we are. I think this is a really important thing to remember they are still in the era of disorientation. This is still moments after loss. Jesus is still not present with them in the way they are grieving, missing. Jesus is present, to be sure, but it's in a new kind of way. This community is also starting to experience uh, distance, from, from others in, in their families, in their neighborhoods, because they're still associating with this Jesus character who's been crucified and saying that he rose from the dead. There is dissonance for this community. There is grief. And yet here, the divine is showing up to show them something new, something hopeful that is being resurrected amongst them. Friends, we are in a time we've not lived through before. None of us have survived a pandemic. Nobody. None of our systems, none of our structures, none of our communities, none of our churches have lived through this kind of crisis. Sure, there are certainly moments in history that are instructive and helpful to consider as we make our way forward, moments that show us that human communities have survived similar catastrophes. But living into this moment requires all of us learning new skills, adapting to new realities, and imagining new ways forward. What's hopeful to me about this story is the way it demonstrates the spirit taking the lead to bring about a more just, inclusive, expansive reality, one which none of the human players involved could have conceived of. They couldn't have known how to bring it about, even if they understood it's where they were supposed to go. They needed the divine to meet them in these places of possibility and break through in new ways, just as the spirit did. Perhaps that's why it's so vital in this season, I think, that we don't throw in the towel on our spiritual journeys, because they're really challenging to navigate right now. Instead, I sense we have to continue to find these ways to gather, even virtually, to connect through Zoom, through YouTube, through Slack, through the phone, to re-examine our sacred texts, allow them to speak in fresh ways to cultivate or recultivate practices like prayer, like some of those practices we learned last week, meditation, discerning, touch, connection with the natural world. All of these can make room for the mystical presence of the divine to challenge our assumptions and invite us into new kinds of possibilities for ordering our individual lives, and our collective lives. Our old model is only gonna take us so far. Remember, resurrecting isn't about resuscitating what was. It's about transforming what has been lost into a more redeemed reality. More than ever, we need to connect with the loving spirit that can give us an imagination for something new and redemptive, showing us the way The divine is already working that we've yet been unable to perceive. Amen? Finally, as we do this, perhaps we can take encouragement from the third and final thing I'll draw our attention to in this story. The Spirit invites us to participate in the work of resurrection the spirit invites us to participate the spirit doesn't do everything in the story it just gets it all going the spirit who i i personally imagine and so will speak of as we end in a more personal feminine way she is a catalyst she stirs up cornelia she stirs up peter she whispers to each of them she brings them together exploding in ways that shock them but she also gives them important roles to play, too. Cornelius hears her voice through this angel. He sends off his servants. He gathers his friends and his family to his home. He demonstrates real humility and teachability as he kneels with deep reverence before the uneducated fisherman named Peter before him. Could you imagine if we had leadership that would listen with that kind of teachability? to those whom God wants to speak through right now. Peter discerns her call, the Spirit's call, and goes despite real concerns for his danger. He doesn't get in the way. And when he sees with his own eyes this spirit at work, doing things he couldn't have imagined, he becomes committed to this new revelation of what is being resurrected. He becomes an important advocate to the rest of the early church for why this resurrecting body of Christ must include all people, as he tells the story far and wide of how the spirit revealed herself on that day in Caesarea. In the same way, I believe this same Spirit is inviting us to resist fatalism, to resist falling into our old ways of seeing those in groups that we perceive to be different than ourselves. Instead, this Spirit invites us to hear her call in new ways and to participate, even from our living rooms even though we have no idea where it's all going, she's inviting each of us to play a part in the new thing she is resurrecting among us. May we have enough relationship with possibility to let her speak to us. May we have enough hope to let her challenge our assumptions and show us the new thing she is building. And may we have enough courage to say yes and follow this divine spirit into what she is resurrecting. Amen. Amen, friends. Let's take a moment to make space for that. Will you join me to invite this spirit to speak? I'm just gonna take us into a contemplative moment, I invite you to, make, to be comfortable, to take a deep breath, to close your eyes if it's helpful. I'm gonna invite you to consider a time you felt deeply connected to this spirit. Whatever that looked like, whether you were looking at a sunset, whether you were being prayed for, whether you were singing in a community, Whatever it was, I just invite you to consider that moment and to be present in it. As you consider that moment, I also invite you to allow your imagination to play a bit, and to imagine how the divine was present there. What did that look like? Some of us might see uh, a figure that looks to us and whatever our mind's view of Jesus would be sitting with us. We might perceive the divine in the breeze that's blowing through our hair. We might see the divine as a parent so just allow yourself to, to have an image of where the divine was present with you. And see how that impacts your capacity to experience that presence. Feeling that connection, now I ask you to think of a place right now where you feel really stuck, where things feel really intractable. Could be feeling stuck by what's happening on the international level. Just one thing that feels really impossible. Could feel something much more close to home, much more personal. I invite you to acknowledge that peace. And I invite you to invite that same presence you experienced before. To see that peace with you. And to ask that presence, what do you have to show me here? How do you perceive this? Issue. Is there a new way you want me to see this? Listen for any words that might come to your mind, any images that might appear, any sen- any emotions that might come up. could just be allowing the divine to witness with you what feels impossible. Spirit, we thank you that you are one who does not want us to remain stuck, either because of assumptions we make or realities that have hemmed us in. Would you continue to inspire and give us new imagination for transformed, resurrected, Life, particularly in a time where we recognize that all of our old ways of being will fall short of being part of the new creation I believe you are birthing. Would you continue to speak to us individually, collectively, and unite us with all? who you are calling into that just reality. Amen.